0: This morning, I encourage you to join me in Matthew's Gospel in the 11th chapter, Matthew 11, verses 25 to 30. Matthew eleven twenty-five 25 to 30. At that time, Jesus declared.
1: Father, by your spirit now,
0: please attend this, the preaching of your word. Grant to us the grace we so desperately need to rightly hear and receive this. For it is in Jesus' name we pray. We continue in our series regarding our proposed confession of faith today, the free offer Of the gospel. With all of the cancel culture we see around us, it may seem peculiar to be talking about a confession, and even stranger to be talking about historical confessions. Uh, When we live in an era where we're seeing historical monuments torn down, historical figures despised, and past history making events treated as though they should be forgotten. Why would we appeal to something from history as being of any relevance? Certainly, there are historical events and persons who should be treated much more carefully. The history itself needs to be accurate and understood properly. While it should never be glossed over, it should also never be treated with contempt. Many who claim that, that Such great importance today will no doubt be relegated to the dustbin of history, and
1: that very quickly.
0: In looking at the great Christian tradition in this case, more particularly the Baptist tradition, we are being actually quite Baptistic when we look back. Baptists tend to affirm congregationalism, and uh, there's really nothing more democratic than even giving your ancestors a vote on what it is you believe and what it is you affirm. We have made no secret that the confession we have proposed is tied to one from 1833, the New Hampshire Baptist Confession. And that this confession includes this article, in essence the same, we've changed it slightly in language I think to modernize it just a bit, We believe that the blessings of salvation are made free to all by the gospel, that it is the immediate duty of all to accept them by a cordial, penitent, and obedient faith, and that nothing prevents the salvation of the greatest sinner on earth but his own inherent depravity and voluntary rejection of this gospel, which rejection involves him in an aggravated condemnation. Now, why include this why does this matter and why would the history behind this matter Um, just this past week dear friend a pastor that i've known well over 30 years pastor gary long father to tim who's a member here passed away gary knew more about baptist history than i will ever know and i was always intrigued by his grasp of that history but he would have understood this and commended me for uh, addressing this. The New Hampshire Confession in 1833 found itself in America because Baptists, out of the Second Great Awakening, suddenly found themselves uh, in a situation where there were some new groups that were arising. Now, I know some of you are already wondering, should you be streaming this? Because it sounds like it's going to be history. Well, just a little bit. And I'll try to make it as painless as possible, But what happened was you had a new group rising up among Baptists. They were called Free Will Baptists. A fellow named Benjamin Randall proclaimed strongly the universal love, universal grace, and universal atonement, and this was causing some splits among Baptists. He even affirmed that you could lose your salvation. There was another movement called Hyper-Calvinism the anti-mission society movement, people that were opposed to sending missionaries out because they thought it was a wrong thing to do. And finally, there was an opposition to confessions and the new birth. Alexander Campbell had begun a new movement called the Restorationist Movement. And he didn't believe that you ought to have a confession and he didn't believe in the Spirit of God regenerating you before you exercised repentance and faith. Repentance and faith were something you possessed innately. You were able to do. And so out of that, the New Hampshire Confession is born. Now, this particular article in the New Hampshire was aimed at that thing that I mentioned earlier that sounds weird, hyper-Calvinism. In the era of Star Wars and Star Trek, hyper has a much different meaning, it seems, in our time, although there are some similarities, I suppose. Some called it high Calvinism. Now, when we use terms like Calvinism, Arminianism, hyper-Calvinism, it can be very, very confusing, and I get that. And please understand, I'm trying to make this as simple and accurate at the same time as I can. The reformer, John Calvin, had a particular doctrinal persuasion named after him. It was not his doing, but it just came to be called Calvinism over time. And he had a very strong emphasis on the sovereignty of God and salvation. Now let me make clear, Calvin was not unique in this. Luther had a very strong view of the sovereignty of God as well. And you couldn't read his bondage of the will, his argument with Erasmus, without picking that up. But after Calvin writes his Institutes of the Christian Religion, the first rather systematic declaration of what was believed. And by the way, the Institutes were not aimed primarily at theologians and pastors. It was actually written for the common man to understand. It was written as a defense to the King of France for the belief in Protestant doctrine. And so this view, a high view of the sovereignty of God, became pretty much the position throughout Europe. And then who'd have thought? Somebody decided they disagreed some years later. His name was Jacob Hermanzun. That's roughly as close as I can get to the actual Dutch pronunciation, which when brought over into Latin, which I think everybody and their dog spoke in the 1600s, came over as Jacobus Arminius. And you get the term Arminian from that. I always want to make clear an Armenian and an Arminian are not the same thing. Though an Armenian might well be an Arminian, he may as also at the same time be a Calvinist. An Armenian means somebody from Armenia. Arminian is somebody who affirms what Jacobus Arminius taught. Now the challenge, he he didn't agree about the depravity of man, he didn't agree about election, he didn't agree about the atonement, he didn't agree about the perseverance of the saints. So a bunch of the Dutch theologians got together he was Dutch, they got together at a little thing called the Synod of Dort, and I know you're just so excited to get all these terms down. The long and the short of it is they rejected everything that he brought up. And the five things that he brought up, actually were brought up by his followers because he died before there was a chance for him to defend it himself, became known as the five points of Calvinism. Now, why does all of that matter? Well, (laughs) in some ways it doesn't, but in many ways it does. Because what came to pass then was an ongoing division, and that's not unusual. We see this throughout church history between those with a very high view of the sovereignty of God in the matter of salvation and those who think that's wrong and want to talk about free will. And this even affected, who would have thought, Baptists in England in the 1600s. Now, this seems to have been mostly a Baptist problem because some of them decided that if this is true, that then it is wrong to encourage people, invite people to trust in Jesus because they may not be elect. And you're asking them to do something that they don't have the power to do. And so they called it, of all things, duty, faith. They're saying to a man without knowing whether he's one of the elect that he had an obligation to believe was wrong. It was a mistake. Thus, the idea of a hyper-Calvinism. Now, this plagued Baptist churches in England and America. In fact, it was this that led Andrew Fuller, one of our Baptist forebears, to argue that you can believe in the doctrine of God's sovereignty and salvation, you can believe in election, and still believe in the urgency of evangelism and missions, And Fuller was friends with somebody you may actually have heard of in all of this, a fellow named William Carey. Carey is the father of modern missions. And part of what Carey had to fight against to take the gospel to India was the attitude that it was wrong to go invite people to Jesus. God will save the heathen when he gets around to doing it. It's up to God. Carey disagreed with that. Though Carey would have affirmed without equivocation his belief in total pravity, God's electing grace, all of those doctrines he would have affirmed. But at the same time, he willingly poured out his life in the effort of evangelism. This even plagued Mr. Spurgeon when he first came to London. Many of the Baptists there, the British particular Baptists, thought that Spurgeon was a hopeless compromiser because he invited people to Jesus. And it created a rift among the Baptists in that day. And, of course, as we mentioned, it even came over to America. The New Hampshire was meant as a correction to this hyper-Calvinism. Had this not come, hyper-Calvinism would have been disastrous to the American missionary efforts, including the first American Baptist missionary, Adoniram Judson. I know, he said, okay, great, fine history lesson, pastor, what does that have to do with us today? Why did you keep that in the confession? I'll tell you in a little bit. But for now, I'd want us to look at the text, because the text, I think, gives us what we need to know. You see, we tend to think that either we need to change ourselves before we come to Christ, or... That I need to see a change in somebody before I can invite them to Christ. And what you see here is that Christ gladly, willingly calls sinners to himself. First, the Father's good pleasure is displayed here as a comfort. Now it says, at that time. Well, at what time? Well, you look back earlier in the 11th chapter. Jesus has messengers come from John the Baptist. Are you the one we're looking for or are we looking for somebody else? You've got to know John is imprisoned and he's getting discouraged. Why am I still in prison? If this is the Messiah, where is the uprising? Why is Israel not casting off this this burden of Roman rule and why is Herod not out of office and why am I still in prison? And Jesus tries to send encouragement. To John. Tell him, verse 5 the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who's not offended by me. And then he turns around to the crowd and he says, What'd you go out to see when you would see John? And he makes some comparisons and he says, verse 9. What then did you go out to see, a prophet? Yes, I tell you, more than a prophet. This is he of whom it's written. And then he quotes about the messenger who will come. None greater coming, notice in verse 11, than John the Baptist. Yet hear that last sentence. The one who's least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Why? John is the last of the old covenant prophets. Even John is not going to see all that comes by Messiah. From the days of John the Baptist until now the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. What is he saying? He's talking about people longing to be in the kingdom and they come into it with energy. He who has ears to hear let him hear. And then he compares the generation. He says you people are impossible to please. It's like kids playing in the marketplace. Now the games that kids play reflect the culture around them, right? So he looks at these culture, and it's like children sitting in the marketplace calling out to playmates, we played the flute for you and you didn't want to dance, and we sang a dirge and you didn't want to mourn. Now, two big events in the life of the day that interrupt the normal daily task, the labor, the work, were weddings and funerals. And so the children would play wedding and funeral. And he said, You guys, I don't know what to do with you. It's like the kids who say, Well, let's play the flute. Let's dance. It's pretend wedding day. Let's have fun. I don't want to do that. Well, fine. Let's mourn. I can imitate the best mourners. They paid people to mourn. I I can sound horrible, and we'll we'll mourn. We'll have a dirge. It'll be awful. And I don't want to play that either. John the Baptist comes neither eating nor drinking, and what do they say about him? He's demon-possessed. Remember, John had something of a Nazarite about him. He didn't eat anything but locusts and wild honey. Strange diet, even in that day. And apparently, he never partook of wine. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. I know that can shock some Baptists, but he did. And they say... Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard. Friend of tax collectors and sinners. So he's saying, you guys don't seem to get it, and you don't want to get it. Send you the prophet? Nope. Send you the Messiah? Nope. We're not getting on board with any of it. And then he announces the cities. I'm going to reference that in just a moment because of the works they'd seen. But Jesus then says, at that time, Jesus says, praise, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. You've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Stop there.
1: Jesus declares
0: quite bluntly, quite bluntly, clearly, that the Father hid some things. Now how's the hiding show up? Verse 20, He began to denounce the cities. Most of His mighty works had been done because they didn't repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you." We've done this before, but what is the question that begs to be asked? If the works done here and didn't do anything, had been done there, and it would have done something, what's the question? Why didn't God do that? Why? Why send the message to Chorazin and Bethsaida, and they don't repent, but if he had gone to Tyre and Sidon, they would have. Why go to Capernaum, and they won't repent, but if he had done it in Sodom, Sodom would still be around. What's
1: the question? Why didn't you? Now there's no less than the Son of God saying this,
0: right? Why didn't you? I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to the children. Yes, Father, for such was your what? Gracious will. God had a purpose. Now, friend, this is a difficult thing, and I'm not saying this is among the easy things, but can we find comfort and pleasure and praise in the fact that in some cases God hides salvation? You look at the 13th chapter a little later here in Matthew, and he's telling parables and he will tell him. He'll tell the disciples in verse eleven, "To you it's been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it's not been given. For the one who has more will be given; he'll have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away." That's why I speak to them in parables because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear nor do they understand. Indeed in their case the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says you will indeed hear but never understand you will indeed see but never perceive for this people's heart has grown dull and that their ears they barely hear their eyes they have closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and I should heal them. Now lest you think that's unique this is nothing but echoing The commission of Isaiah in Isaiah 6. Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Here am I, send me. Well, fine. Here's the message you're going to do. Ever seeing and never understanding. Ever hearing and never getting it. There are times the Father, according to His will, leaves people in their sin. But along with that, my friend, the humility that ought to strike us is this. Why me? If I'm a Christian, why me? That same 13th chapter of Matthew, verse 16, Blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, didn't see it, hear what you hear, and didn't hear it. What it comes down to is this, my friend. Can you find comfort in the Father's sovereign pleasure? You see, it's never our job to figure out who those are the Father's going to call. That isn't our job. Never. One of, I think this is legend, there may be some truth to it, that one of the hyper-Calvinists in Spurgeon's day said, Mr. Spurgeon, why do you call everybody to salvation? You ought to just preach to the elect. And Spurgeon's comment was said to be uh, to hand him a piece of chalk and says, you mark them, I'll preach to them. None of us see this happening. It is the secret work of God, and it is the Father's good pleasure. What it does mean, I think, is that you and I should tremble at the idea of hearing and seeing, but never really perceiving. That is frightening to me, that it is possible to sit under the preaching of the gospel. And I I think of this virtually every time I stand in front of this congregation that there may be some of you who have heard me preach for nigh unto 27-plus years now and have never come to saving faith. What a horror! You say, well, I'm not elect. It won't do me any good to try. No, my friend. Hear the call. Come to me. There's a second element here. The Father's good pleasure is a comfort but secondly the son's revelation let's just say it's comprehensive verse 27 all things have been handed over to me by my father no one knows the son except the father and no one knows the father except the son and anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him the son reveals the father He reveals the nature of the Father, that is, He is holy, yes, but He is also loving for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. And He reveals the way to the Father. How can sinners come to this Father? Through Christ. The all things of salvation are committed by the Father to the Son. The Father and the Son know each other. And you never know the Father without the Son showing you the Father. The acquaintance cannot be made outside of Jesus Christ. You may have an understanding generally of God from revelation in nature, general revelation. You may even pick up some things from the Bible and from Christian people. But the only way you get an a one-on-one introduction to God the Father is through God the Son. There is salvation in no other way. He is comprehensive in what He does for you. The heart of this is to know God. And you do that through His Son. John 1.15, John bore witness about Him, cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from, the full, from his fullness we've all received grace upon grace. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one's ever seen God, the only God who's at the Father's side. He has made him known. John 17, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes and said, Father, The hour has come, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you've given Him authority over all flesh, give eternal life to all you have given Him. Why stop there, my friend? Because the only way you find salvation is through Jesus Christ. It is the knowledge of God, and this is the only place that it can be found, the only person. This is comprehensive. Finally, we consider first the Father's good pleasure is actually to be comforting to us. We ought to rejoice in it. The Son's revelation is comprehensive. If you know God, you must know His Son. Finally, the Son's invitation is compelling. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, For I am gentle and lowly in heart, you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Now should we make a distinction here between the imperative come and a more indicative come, that is, between a command or an invitation? And my answer is, why would you make such a fine distinction? Do I command sinners to come to Christ? You bet. Repent and believe, that's a command. it's an imperative. Do I invite sinners to come to Christ? You bet. Oh, won't you repent and believe? In evangelizing, why would we not do so? It intrigues me that people who reject the doctrine of election, part of their argument for the rejection is this if you believe in election, why evangelize? You'll kill evangelism. And the hyper-Calvinist, in essence, does the same thing from the other direction. God will save whom he will. Thus, you don't need to plead with people or invite people to Jesus. And I reject both of those things out of hand. Now, some will argue, well, you need to see there's some evidence that God's at work in their life. And how am I supposed to do that? Where's the evidence? And how does it look? The invitation is to those who labor and are heavy laden. My friend, it's a reminder that we should proclaim to all sinners the gospel. You see, all sinners, whether they know it or not, are laboring and under a heavy burden. Scripture tells us they're already under the wrath of God, which is where we were, right? Ephesians 2, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, now listen to this, and were by nature, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So, first you have an imperative yes, come. It is an exclusive to me, it is inclusive. All who labor and are heavy laden, and it's recuperative. I'll give you rest. You'll find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. And it's active. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me.
1: Friend, the fact is we don't know who has that sense of being burdened. I love Mr.
0: Spurgeon on this, come. He drives none away. He calls them to himself. His favorite word is come, not go to Moses, come unto me. To Jesus himself we must come by a personal trust, not to doctrine, ordinances, or ministry are we to come first, but to the personal Savior. All the laboring and laden ones may come. He doesn't limit the call to the spiritually laboring, but every working and wearied one is called. It is well to give the largest sense to all that mercy speaks. Jesus calls me. Jesus promises rest as his gift, his immediate, personal, effectual rest he freely gives to all who come to him by faith.
1: I know. Okay, preacher. Who's arguing? Why include this article? We're not hyper-Calvinists. Because, my friend, far
0: too often I believe in our laziness, our disobedience, our fear, and even sometimes... Our mistaken theological understanding, we fail to evangelize. We leave people in spiritual darkness and death without even trying to shine the light of truth into their lives. Yes, they are in bondage and darkness. Yes, God is sovereign. In salvation. Yes, the Holy Spirit must attend preaching the gospel, evangelizing, sharing Christ. But my friend, unless you and I open our mouths and speak the gospel to call them to Christ, to invite them to Christ, we have become in effect hyper-Calvinists.
1: We have failed of the grace we have been shown. We think of this wrongly. It's intriguing to me
0: that Paul uses the language of debtor, but not a debtor to God. His debt is to those, both Jew and Gentile, who have not heard the gospel. You can read that in Romans 1. He owes to them the message. Now I know not all of us are evangelists. Please don't for a moment think I'm trying to say that all of us are going to be, have the gift of evangelism. Not everybody has the gift, but please understand... A lack of the gift doesn't mean you are loosed from the responsibility when the opportunity presents itself to speak the truth, to tell of what Christ has done for you. I look at it this way. Those of us who are married are probably not what folks would term experts necessarily on marriage. Is that fair? I've got a handful here. We're all kind of amateurs, right? It doesn't keep us though. If somebody asks or seems inclined, or somewhere along the way, it's not too hard, is it, to say, "I'm I'm I'm married to a wonderful woman. We 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 have a wonderful life together. It's really been good. I can bear witness to that. And anybody that knows the situation say, "Yes, Doug, you did." We're not sure she got an equal deal out of this, but it's, it's nice that you enjoy that. There are some who know a lot more about marriage, and I guess I'm supposed to be in that category since I do a lot of marriage counseling. And yes, there are things you can learn and coach people on and help them with. But you see, folks, where we live our lives typically is this way. We don't go to the expert all the time to get help. We go around those that we know.
1: Here's what I'm saying.
0: People don't usually go tracking down the preacher if they're not Christians to ask questions. But you know who they'll
1: talk to? Their neighbor? That gal or guy they work with? That parent who has a kid in the same school? How can we keep from telling what the Lord has done for us?
0: Paul has these words in second Corinthians for having this ministry by the mercy of God, we don't lose heart, but we've renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways we We, we refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but By the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience and the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What am I saying? Friend, you have no idea what God has done in that person's life who's
1: in your circle.
0: And, And maybe it's a moment where somebody just suddenly pops up in your world and you're fearful, and you don't know what to do, you're afraid of messing this up, let me, just, let me just make something really clear to you. You really can't botch this.
1: How do you know that
0: person hadn't just prayed before they run into you? You know, God, if you're really out there, if this stuff is real, will you just send somebody? And that you're the somebody. Maybe somebody else has already told them the whole gospel message. And they're just stuck and don't know what to do. And they're, they're struggling over this. And just the fact that you open your mouth and say, you know, friend, I, I, you're struggling. I understand. And just know that I pray, I'm praying for you. And, and I know the Lord Jesus. And he's been so good to me. And I, I pray that you'd find that. Do you understand that may be all that's needed? In that moment,
1: for somebody to move from death to life.
0: My friends, I pray truly God would blight our comforts if we're going to keep it to ourselves. I pray we'd just be
1: miserable. People's eternal souls Hang in the balance. Will we act as though we who have life
0: and the cure shall we act as though we don't among those who are
1: dying? Let us be free Let us be liberal with our spread of good news. May the Lord grant it. Amen. Father, forgive our callousness. Forgive our foolishness. Forgive us From using truths that are there for our comfort. Turning them into excuses. Lord. Change us. Make us what we ought to be. For your glory and their good. In Jesus' name.